from the Center for the Study of Art and Community. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. This week, the third and final entry in our Three Trickster series features the big wow, a bridge builder, chef, culinary comedian, water opera impresario, Robert Farid Karimi. Like the other artists in this series, Robert's work is not easily defined. Suffice it to say that when he steps into the many communities he engages, he comes with both a smile and a smirk, with both an air of openness and mystery, and with the intention of both provocation and healing and a lot of love. So, on with the show. It's going to be wet, wild, and delicious. asking yourself, what's in store for that bickering couple? <laughs> Some kind of neighborhood water festival? A pandemic healing ritual? A new idea for a theme restaurant? Well, like the guy in our little story says, the answer is yes and no, and a lot of in-between, which is the juicy territory that this week's guest, comedian, chef, poet, educator, and activist Robert Farid Karimi has been investigating over the last couple of decades. Like many of our guests, Robert, who is also known as Mero Cocinero, Farid Mercury, the People's Chef, and even in some quarters, Betty Crocker's radical heir apparent, Robert is not easily pegged. In the conversation that follows, we explore some of the stories, ideas, and questions that animate his work. How can humor become a bridge in a conflict-ridden community? What is the role of the fool and gossip in the post-truth era? And what can community organizers learn from Mel Brooks and Cheech and Chong? Along the way, we hear some great stories and have us some fun. This is Change the Story, Change the World, a chronicle of art and community transformation. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part one, two eras mi otro yo. My dad used to own a tortilla factory on East 14th. 
on the borderline of San Leandro and Oakland. Not the best place to have a tortilla factory, but I had to touch the carnitas and all the pork products because I wasn't like full Muslim. And that's the Bay Area to me. If you had a street name, and maybe you do, what would it be? I would say my street name would be Bridge. I have this whole thing about who I am. Like, I'm a narrative designer. I'm a performer. I'm a poet. I'm a producer of play. I, I have all these various different names I use, but it matters which community I'm in. But I think Bridge is what it is because... If I'm telling a story, if I'm performing, if I'm consulting with a foundation, or if I'm just working on teaching, no matter what I'm doing, I'm constantly in that role of bridge. That, I feel, started with my role as translator for my parents, because the Iranian dad and the Guatemalan mom here in the Bay Area in the 70s, and I'm the one that English is my first language, I'm always the one having to talk to people. I remember telling my friends, I did, I thought everyone did this. We would take the boating guide in English and I would read it with them. I'm always the first one to go to school, go to proms, understand this thing called the United States. So for me, this bridge thing works. And then when I started reading about various community folks like Africa Bambada and learning about the person that goes to different gang areas and walks around, that's who I was here. I would end up in different neighborhoods in the Bay Area because this is my hometown, the entire Bay. Because that bridge making, that, that connection is very important to me. But also I understand that it's hard to hold two pieces of earth. I really feel for bridges. I feel for people who feel that they themselves are bridges because this, it's not easy work to hold two, two sides of earth so that others can cross. A lot of times people, they're not appreciating everything it took to keep everybody up. Yeah, so how does that show up in your work as a performer on stage? That's why I don't open with it usually, because as an artist in the United States or in the world, a bridge is more metaphoric, is less legible within capitalism and art. However, for the work, that needs to be done, the bridges are usually the first one we call. Absolutely. And I, I feel so blessed because all the good things that have happened in my life is because I've been a bridge. And people like the idea of tu eres mi otro yo or en la queche, you are my other eye, recognizing the bridge in me. And when others, I recognize the bridge in them, even to whatever percentage they, they have consciousness of that, that creates art, that creates connection, that creates work, that creates ideas, visioning. All that's a part of my practice. And my very first time in Seattle, this was in 1998, I was the, I guess, the first person at this slam to speak Spanish in the nightclub. And I get heckled and booed and everything and speak English because I did a bilingual poem. And whoa, this is real. But this is usually what I was doing. I was usually performing in places that there was no traditional Iranian Guatemalan center out there. I would end up in places like, for example, up in Alaska, working in what was identified as a queer theater, but working with native youth doing spoken word because the artistic director there thought, oh yeah, this guy's perfect. He gets them and they'll get him. Is that... Out north? That is out north, yeah. <laughs> and, that, and I was like, you're crazy. No way this is going to work. And sure enough, he was right. Those people were in that in-between as well. Absolutely. Even hanging out with the Hmong community in Minneapolis, there's a certain moment in every group that folks want to be able to assert themselves as themselves. And I have been very privileged and lucky to be around when that happens. So you can't see this in radio. I am circling my hands. As people start circling, almost like a mosh pit, creating energy conjuring. and conjuring, yes. It's just, it's, even as a mosh pit, as these pe folks create energy, I've been lucky to help be a part of that spark. We live in a modern world that has really made an institution of forgetting. And it's always, I think, either a revelation or a shock to some people. 
when I make the assertion that what you're talking about has pretty much been the job description of creative humans for 98% of human history, that making sense and meaning, speaking truth in ways that can actually help the parts of the community that are struggling to cooperate, who need to cooperate, find a common ground. All of those things, trickster, artist, comedia, performer, healer, celebrationist, big C, little C culture bearer, all of that is the work. And what's happened recently is that at a certain point in history, there was this thing, let's make it precious and put it in a box and turn it into a scarce commodity. I think that concept of preciousness happens along the way for almost anything. One of the things I always carry, I put it at the beginning of my thesis about play and playfulness in socially engaged art. It comes from House Made of Dawn by N. Scott Mamaday. And it's a reverend and he's talking about John the Baptist and he's talking about the Kiowa and the finding of their fetish out in the wilderness. And he keeps asking the congregation, what's the most important thing? Is it the encounter or is it the religion that gets created? And he talks about his grandmother and that her words were medicine and she didn't waste them. I remember that quote very well because that's what was taught to me. This idea that when words go from medicine to this corporate religion, whatever it may be, yeah. can happen in any sector. And what's really interesting is you're, what you're hitting for me is we are still hungry for the medicine people. And so for me, as I'm growing, I, I start really holding on to the concept of the artist plus is this person that empathy is central to them. And it, it's not that they don't care about making money. It's not about they don't care about creating a life for themselves within their practice. It's also that they understand that they are part of a system and that their artistic production is in relation to that system. And th this idea of Artist Plus helps me to think about every time I go into a city or I go into a community to work, I'm always thinking about how I can be a symbol of change. So for example, when I do my cooking show, I'm thinking, how can I hire people? How can the funding that I'm getting go to a place that will deal with a community? So when I leave the community, maybe I need two to $3,000 extra for them to buy refrigerator, buy equipment. These are things that took a long time before I never thought that way. I just thought, oh, I'm going to do a show. Right. I'm, I'm a show. Yay. I'm going to make you laugh. That's enough. No, I can do more. Artist plus started realizing everywhere we did my cooking show, I, I toured with, with the, the cooking show, Concarimi and Comrades. I toured with that for five years and I realized everywhere we went, the fundraising for the institution went up. Part two, Mero Cocinero. So now let me take you, you have made numerous references. Yeah. The listener is going, what the hell is he talking about with this cooking? Yes. So can you do the Robert Karimi cooking 101 story? Yes, I can. I'll try to be brief because it's a long story. In the 90s, I decided to make with a fellow artist to make an installation dedicated to immigrant adaptation because my Guatemalan mother had made my Iranian food all my life. And I didn't know Iranian food made by Iranians, just didn't. And then my mom would learn the Betty Crocker recipes. And this is how she taught me to be in, from the United States. I built this installation. We built it in San Francisco at Galeria de la Raza, did this thing. And then I decided that I would be this character named Mero Cocinero, progressive chef that's trying to change the world through cooking, but he's a total bumbler. And I would make food on Saturday at two o'clock. KQED had cooking shows all the way till two. And so my mom and I used to watch cooking shows every weekend, every Saturday. And so I wanted to pretend that this was the last KQED show, but it was live and people came and they knew the only thing they had to do was listen to the story that I told and they would get free food. So it would start with five people, 10, 20, and then it became hundreds. And because people heard there was free food, so they started coming. And then I worked at a theater company in LA called Cornerstone. And I was their marketing person, audience development person. It was an internship and I couldn't get anybody to come to their shows. It was a bridge show, haha, -ha, that went to five communities 
And the best way, I was in this Filipino community in Eagle Rock, and they're like, it was in a Druze Center, the, the show. And they're like, we never been there. Why should we come? And, and the guy goes, the barber, I'll never forget. He goes, is there going to be food? I'm like, yeah, court, I'll come. I'll bring the kids. Can we bring the kids? Will you feed them too? Yeah, cool. I need to feed people after work. Okay, great. Nobody cared about the play. Oh, nobody cared about Carter Stone's history, legacy, their politics. They just cared about that food. And that is when the cooking show, I started, I started doing it. And then people said, oh, food, theater, no, never going to work. So I was like, okay, no one likes it. Then I go to Chicago and I make a cooking show and it just takes off. Like people start coming. This, the character now has a story. We bring other characters. I combine the aesthetics of Pee Wee Herman with a, a political comedy show. I think the episode we did was it was the anniversary of the CIA and uh, going into Guatemala and Iran. So that was the recipes. And it was just, I could be irreverent. I could bring all those things I talked about into it. And I had this crazy chef that could never get it right. So we always had to ask the audience to help him finish or the characters to help him finish or someone to help him finish. So it became participatory. And then I started doing it against the Iraq war. We did war against indigestion. We took it off Broadway. We started taking it everywhere because we could talk about anything. Because as long as people got fed. Absolutely. Let me get, I, I want to see this. It, there's a kitchen on stage. There is two counters on stage. There's two tables. It's Mero Cocinero's aesthetic, okay? Mero Cocinero in English means the best cook, but it also implies in Mexican Spanish, Mero means the best in air quotes cook. So they know he's your friendly neighborhood cook. He's cool, but he might not be that good. So, so there's two tables. Usually we would get local posters. So for example, in Minnesota, we had Ricardo Levens Morales gave us posters or we bought posters. Faliana Rodriguez, we bought posters from her when we did in the Bay. So we had various artists because it was supposed to be uh, a term by Tomas Ibarrafrausto and Amalia Mesa Baines. The idea was supposed to be rascuache. It was supposed to be looking like you got it from various places to create the set because that was the metaphor of cooking. You get it from everywhere, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So even the set looked that way. I'd make these fictional recipes and we did everything from, we did hummus con chile de arbol, which, you know, had spice to protect you just in case a tank came. If you were on Palestinian land, the hummus would make you feel better. This is where the politics of it all came. Like we had lumpia campesina, which was supposed to be the lumpia, the Filipino egg roll that united L Latino and Filipino farm workers. Like there was always an extra thing underneath because this was the sly way to talk about food history and honor our ancestors. And it never was just about the food, never. Yes, share a story about someone who passed to the other side that fed you comfort food. It was the way to get you in the room. And then out of that, in 2009, I got a creative capital to work on diabetes and democracy. And that became 10 years of my life, focusing on type 2 diabetes in at-risk communities. And my idea was to take the things about the cooking show, the storytelling, the participatory, the fool, and counter the expert-oriented food industry, pharmaceutical industry that was creating shame and guilt for the communities of color that I was noticing that were at risk for type 2 diabetes. And could I honor the wisdom and the power of those communities by just listening, by just featuring them, by using these characters that were totally like Disneyland, very interactive characters, but they were full. Oh, I can't finish. Can you finish, ma'am? Oh, what's your name? What's your recipe? Hey, let's have her. The show's about her. Yeah. And then I would go and do workshops. So in Texas, they took me to a place where there were these women in halfway house where they were in abused relationships and they were separated from their family. And so this home was a, their first time back with their children, but they were noticing that they weren't, you know, eating balanced. So I went in and we did a happy cooking thing. Their kids made mats with the artists that brought the host organization. And we, we made food and we danced and everything. And, and the kids and the workers were saying, we haven't seen these women smile the entire time. And this woman came up to me and told me a story that's still with me. She says, I'm Mexican and my doctor told me 
That's why I have diabetes. And that's what's killing me is being Mexican. And this was the shit that I was hearing on the road. And this is what we were trying to counter. Let me pause a moment here. Your show, your community events are moving from food as an attraction, so to speak, to food as a pathway to engaging people about systemic questions about health and cultural identity and racism. How did that come about? What was that journey? I don't make this way. If it's not for a retreat, we had an Alameda in 09. This is where the resources are helpful. Get these resources. I bring a group of people and our nutritionist, Averill Greenberg, says, oh, you can't. I'm just going to do a play and just go town to town. Oh, no, I'm out. I'm out. If you're not going to be in the community for three months, six months, nine months, really think about being there for time, nah, this ain't going to work. You're just going to be like everybody else. And I was like, wait, I make theater. Oh, no, we don't stay for six months. Where are we going to get the money for that? That's where I was first going. But then that was what was so brilliant because having that time got me to go to a funder and go, hey, this is what we need. It got me to go to Intermedia back in the day in Minneapolis and go, hi, can I sit there for two years and make a residency in that piece of the area you're not using? I want to do that. It made Kresge Foundation come to me and go, hey, we want to make artists like you. What did you do? Can you work with us so that we can make a grant? And they were like, we want to give people money for a year. I go, no, no. Give them money for three, four, five. Takes you so long in this space to make things happen. So look, this one thing happened. All this work happens. And this is where I realized, like, the cooking show, that's why it's hard to even describe. Yes, it's a performance. Yes, it's an installation. Yes, it's a community engagement space. Yes, it's a methodology now. Because out of that came all my new terms for social engagement. And yes, it's now something I can talk to nutritionists, doctors, all this stuff to think about how they engage communities. Did I think about that in 2007, 6, 5, 4 when I was there? No, I was just about thinking about making a show. Now I'm so blessed because the show is just a piece of this huge thing. And this is why I say it's Artist Plus. I don't need everybody to, to go through my long journey. And as a matter of fact, I don't wish it on everybody. It's like if, if someone wants to make music, make plays, do that, that's great. Please, we need it. But this type of work I'm talking about, this idea of making a show, and making an engagement concept and making a methodology and working with doctors and nurses and all that stuff, that's a whole different way of thinking. Part three, Chisme, Cheech, and Chong. You, you've brought up something really important. Yeah. So what you just described, everything from the bridge up to the artist plus is really re responding to what I would say is an intrinsic question that rises up in all humans. What is the story? And then how will it manifest? And for most of human history, that was a given. What is the story? There's so many mysteries out here. It's going to drive me crazy. So give me some answers. And then as we started to organize ourselves and we had bigger questions, we recognized that there are processes that we had to engage in order to make the story, share the story, spread the story, and integrate the story into everyday life. Okay. So that's one thing. Now back to your journey. You weren't born as a bridge. Yeah. My question is a pretty simple one. Yeah. How'd you get that way? I think it was growing up in the Bay Area. We grew up in Filipina and Latina neighborhoods. I was always like the only one in the room that was me. And oh, there he is. It's one of those things where I had to learn about everybody else's culture right away. I had to learn it as a survival technique. I had to learn to listen right away. I had to learn to be quiet in the room because rules were being made for me every minute, every day. And I couldn't go to my parents for answers because they weren't born here. So like my mother and father would be surprised when I would come home and I would know all the Motown or all the 70s funk music that was coming out of the Bay Area. And they were like shocked. Where did you get this? Because I'd be 
walking somewhere. I'd be looking because I became so hungry as a, I became a student of culture. It was really funny because when I first moved back to LA a few years ago, I was in grad school at a very older age. And Suzanne Lacey was like, you know what to do when you come to a new community. And when she said that, I'm like, yeah, because I've been doing it since I was little. Because every community is a new community. Every community is a place where you got to learn the rules, listen. It's one of the reasons why I look away. I think now that I'm just talking to you, I look away a lot to really hear because all my life, we say in Spanish, chisme, gossip. A lot of times for folks, gossip's a bad thing. But to me, it's where you learn the street. It's the story. Right. It's the story. But you also learn the codes. Now we've commercialized it and called it Yelp and Google but and Twitter. But that's gossip. It's what we value and talking about how immigrants, how we transmit information, especially when you come from cultures where the official news is being controlled like Iran and Guatemala. Like gossip is powerful. Cheese is powerful. So I became this bridge by valuing the words of others as truths. They could be lies. They could be a lot of things. I started valuing humor. Go to a barbershop. People laughing. Tell a story. The person who could tell the good story in my house or at the dinner table and make people laugh, they were valued. So to me, if you could talk about politics, if you could talk about religion, if you could talk about all the taboo things and make people laugh, you were valued. People talk about boundaries now and all. It wasn't necessarily boundaries. It was, I like to use the word limit. It was more about, did you push too far? Oh, you pissed off mom. Oh, you're not getting dinner now. But you tried. You did it. My cousins used to tell the most horrible jokes. This was family. This is what we did. When you went outside family and you told that same joke and it got you in trouble, you had to learn that way. Humor to me was never about insulting or bringing others down. Humor for me was always, how can you lift up the room? We've had a bad day. Why you got to be a downer? And I think growing up, that's why I valued it so much. That's why it became part of my toolkit. The other thing was I started realizing that it was the bridges that helped my parents here in this country. Like a very good friend of the family, Roberto Bedoya's mom, Beatrice Bedoya, was one of those folks that always looked out for us. She worked in the union. Everyone knew that if something went down in our neighborhood, go to her. She knew somebody to talk to somebody to talk to somebody else. She was just that bridge person. And that's how this bridge kid started. So at a certain point, you realized that this naturally occurring organic cultural practice called being funny and convivial and connecting and bridging was also something that people did on purpose with intention in front of other people called performance. And how in the world did that happen to you? It's all Richard Pryor, George Carl, Red Fox, Lily Tomlin, Whoopi Goldberg. I loved comedy. I had a Mork and Mindy, Robin Williams, Lunch Pail. Comedy taught me everything about being in the United States, a United Statesian, because that's where I could learn the gossip. Because if you didn't get the joke, you had to learn the joke. And then going back to Artist Plus, Billy Crystal, Robin Williams, Whoopi Goldberg, they did a comic relief. That idea of activism, comedy. And even as I got further down the line and older, learning about Cheech Marin and his activism within the farm work, workers movement. So to me, I was starting to get attracted to these complicated human beings. People were funny and their humor activated me to go learn more. Like they, they became their own hyperlinks. Chappelle talks about humorists that want to be musicians and musicians that want to be humorists. There was something about that. And then finding that within poetry and spoken word was an easy marriage for me. Because for me, I was attracted to the poets that could be funny, but I was attracted to the poets that were A-U-R-A-L, oral. The ones that were playing with the, the language of the Eres and the Enyes and playing with the Spanglish, those were like, oh my God, that's me. For me, they were the ones that really got me going. And why that's so important to me is it got me to think about something I couldn't name until I listened to Up in Smoke's director comments. Up in Smoke is Cheech and Chong's first movie. And so Cheech Marin talks about why they did what they did. 
And this is central to a lot of the characters I create and my performance work, how I'm thinking about activism, how I'm thinking about play and playfulness in my socially engaged work. He talks about wanting to make magic characters. Hey man, am I driving okay? I think we're parked, man. People are like, oh, they're smoking dope, they're stupid, blah, 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 blah. But he's talking about it in the tradition of the fool and talking about how they're above the law and almost ethereal. So that way they can make fun of everything. They're not tied in. They're not like, I'm a political activist, which is cool. That's a road. But I'm interested in Cheech and Chong because they're like, well, we just subverted the system. We just made fun of it. We just made the cops a fool. We just made the politician a fool. We did that by living up here and being light. And that is what Mel Brooks did. And that is why I started connecting to the comedians. Because what are you a bridge to? What are you a bridge for? What is that? To that magic place, that activation of wonder. Because for me, why my work went from a show to installation to residencies to all these various different iterations. I'm just performing in front of the people to activate that magic so that they can realize that they can be like Cheech and Chong too without the THC. Part four, the fool at General Mills. So I just had this movie in my head. I'm in an audience and that's happening. And the thing that came into my mind was, oh wow, you just pulled the curtain on the architecture of imagination. and not just the blueprint, but the moving parts. And when, in fact, the surprise happens, you're seeing the actual organic creation mm -hmm. of a thing that never existed before in front of your eyes. And not only is that a moment of serendipitous genius and silliness at the same time, mm -hmm. it is also an invitation to come with us and be in this together. You and I are humans on a journey that is both profound and quirky as hell. And when you realize, oh wait, okay, the person up there has lost themselves in what's going on. Mm -hmm. And now we're actually all in the same place mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. And now you've caught me in a moment now where I want to go back on stage and perform big places again and do all that, that's going to be a piece. But the other piece is going to be, how do we activate people in playing games? How do I activate folks in, in like I have a card game that's a parody of Cards Against Humanity called Cards Against Iranians and all the forbidden Muslim list that Trump made. And we did a card night at the Ford Amphitheater in LA with an Egyptian performer and a Palestinian comedian and myself, and we fed people, it was a whole game night, and you got to make fun of those people. And people were like, oh, oh, come on, here's your time. Come on, we're, we're, this is it, this is your time. Because the game, the mechanics of the game is supposed to be the most offensive, racist, sexist, homophobic game ever. That's what they made, okay? And so now, how do I subvert that system in order to create a critique about the other system and now, how do we make another system where we can be around each other and look each other in the eye when it happens, rather than happening on the street? And then, what's the next system after that? This goes back to you, the story we tell from the experience we had. That, and this is why I say I'm a narrative designer and producer of play, I'm interested in that piece too. Because that is as much the activation for me, it's the chisme again, that's as much part of it as what I used to do on So here's a thing, Robert. The fool was accountable and would actually pay a price if he went too far. What you're talking about when you say, what I'm on stage, I come and I go, and what's left? What's the legacy of this work? It is basically reacquiring the accountability that the fool had as a sort of natural, organic part of his relationship to the community. And in, in some ways it says, we live in a society that says this moment of humor or wonder or awe is just episodic. It comes and it goes, and then you just go off and do whatever. 
Mm-hmm. And the fool understands he does have magic. Okay. And it can be wielded delicately. It can be wielded dangerously. Mm-hmm. And it can be wielded in a way that heals. And if, in fact, all those three things are true, then you, your accountability, you, you're in touch with something that is profound enough to get people hurt and you in trouble. Right. And well, what you're saying is, let's talk about what has happened within that time period from the king to now. Right now, we compartmentalize the fool. We compartmentalize the comic into a night. But what if we brought the fool in to the board of directors? They brought me in to General Mills, for example, and had me cooking where the Betty Crocker kitchen ladies cook. They stayed. The women who had worked all day stayed because they wanted to have a good time and laugh. My mother still says that's my, the best gig I've ever had because I'm at the home of freaking Betty Crocker. I'm like, I made it. Like, I'm at Betty Crocker. Hello, I'm Betty Crocker. I guess every family has its own kind of problems, but certainly baking a cake doesn't have to be one of them. You don't have to be an expert when you use my cake mix. But those ladies were like so excited to laugh at work. They did not have to stay. General Mills puts the kitchen in the middle of the building so that everyone remembers this is why we do what we do. It's the food. And are there windows in Windows. And it's all glass and you can look into it at any moment. So think about that. You brought joy. So now, what's at center now? Not just food, joy. And within that moment, the fool comes in and has changed your corporation now to not just center into food, but into joy. And now, how does that build? What's interesting is with a company like General Mills, for example, they're already thinking about engagement, culture, and all that stuff to sell stuff to people. They have a whole division dedicated to it. It's called marketing. But no, there's a whole division separate of that. We would call it now cultural disruption. But who's in charge of that? Anthropologists, business folks. Uh, how about if artists were in charge? How about if you found actual artist pluses to come in who are thinking in that systematic way to help be your thought partners? <laughs> how would that change? <laughs> My argument is a lot. And that's why for me, rather than just hiring me as a comedian for their workers, what about if your comedian is part of your whole system? And why I'm thinking about that is it's uh, kind of what happened with the Industrial Revolution and leisure anyways. The Industrial Revolution compartmentalized leisure so that we would only do it over the weekend. How about what has happened to play and playfulness and laughing and humor in our society? It has become compartmentalized. Mm -hmm. But if we brought that into, oh, wait, you mean at Silicon Valley? They're having innovation labs. Oh, wow, at Stanford. They're talking about play. All these people know that this is going to happen, but when are they going to call the artist pluses into the room to be a part of that? So if that actually occurred, how do you see those artist pluses making a difference in the lives of all those Betty Crockers or the company's impact on the community? I'm constantly thinking about that. Impact's important to me because when I was doing the type 2 diabetes work with the Diabetes of Democracy Project, I couldn't just walk into a community and go, I'm going to save you all because I'm a person of color who's funny. No. I had to go back to the kid that was listening. I had to go back and listen to the folks in the community. And when I did that, then I could see how I could be of service. So when I first started the Center for the Study of Art and Community, I wrote a manifesto. It's called Bridges, Translations, and Change, Art as Infrastructure in 21st Century America. A mouthful. Uh, But when you talk about infrastructure, you're talking about basics, roads, bridges, electricity, healthcare, the social safety net, and yeah, in my book, art and culture in the streets and institutions, the things that are constant that everyone needs and benefits from. So... On the cultural front, the difference between an art event and art as infrastructure is at the end of the day, the event comes and goes and the infrastructure is maintained. Now, of course, most folks these days don't see a comedian engaging the workers at General Mills or addressing diabetes as infrastructure. But when I thought about you, 
the fool on stage cooking away and the people there salivating and listening, right? The combination of the brain getting provoked, the heart getting tickled, and the taste buds getting primed, well, this is as, as primal as it gets. I think these are the kinds of connections we need to stimulate new ways of seeing the world, new definitions of what constitutes a healthy, productive life, new definitions of what constitutes infrastructure. Yes, thank you. You got me thinking about how we started the show. We start the show with the heating of onion. And because the character was based on various progressive people I knew, one being Guillermo Gomez Peña, and so we would ritualize the onions in a very buffoony way. And we would go, I'm giving you the scent of the onions. We we're like, oh my God, this is crazy. And, but to cut the onions, we needed a person before it got heated. <laughs> and so we would bring somebody up to cut the onions. And we even did this on Green Bay television, this shtick. And we had half an onion. You'd come and cut with Mero Cocinero. I'd pick some random person in the audience. They greet them, they come up, we put an apron on them. And this is all scripted, right? The piece that's not scripted is the interaction between us two. They would take a knife and I would teach them knife safety. So the knife safety one was, I'd ask them which hand they were. Are they leftist? Are they rightist? We, we welcome every hand. And then I'd ask them to get down because you've got to get grounded because you're dealing with the white onion and got to watch out for the white onion. And I'd teach them how to cut and swivel and chop it. And I go, do you notice? They'd be like, well, because they are. Their, their face is away from the onion. We, I purposely put them away. I go, do you see what happened? And they say, what? I go, the white onion didn't make you cry. You were able to cut the white onion and it did not oppress you. And people get the, oh yeah, they get the language, right? And we did this on live TV in Green Bay. So I almost got in trouble. But the thing that, that was a trip was they got night training. We talked politics and then they helped make the first dish. So all these different political things were embedded in this one thing. And I think I look back at that. I look back at that and I'm, wow, this is the kind of art I want to make, kind of stuff I want to be a part of. And that onion, that smell is an invitation. Yeah, it's an invitation to play a game that everybody knows for a prize that everybody is hungry for. Food, fellowship, and fun. Yes, the idea of playing a well-played game. And that concept hit me because why do we go to the theater? We want to play a well-played game with the performers. The performers want to play a well-played game with each other. We don't necessarily need to win. What kind of community do I want? When I'm saying Black Lives Matter, what do, do I want Black Lives to win? Do I want White Lives to win? No, I want us all to play well. That is to me, and in my language, is nourishment. That, to me, is what we're after. And where does that come from? It comes from fun. It comes from a playful spirit. But just this is what the, the brain scientists and other folks have talked about. You know, like Maslow's Triangle, you don't have the security. You don't have the food. You don't have the play. How can you have a playful spirit? And, and why are they getting rid of playgrounds? Okay, those are the physical manifestations. But if I'm always making you not feel the magic, if I'm always getting rid of your wonder, if I'm always doing that systematically, when are you ever going to want to play? And if that's the role of industrial revolution, capitalism, to destroy the play and playfulness out of us, for me, artistically speaking, that's what I want to counter. Part five, your greatest fear. So as you work to counter those really powerful forces, what happens when those playful spirits and that sense of wonder crosses paths with the desire and fear that fuels the predatory capitalism that you've described. So those things that you're talking about, how do we create rather than, oh, we're just going to be free to create a sense of wonder. In my mind, I'm the other way around. How do I create limits? How do I create not safe spaces, play spaces? How do I construct those now? Platforms, where people can get a little messy because when you're cooking, right, it ain't safe <laughs> and you're going to spill shit, you have to sell all that stuff. So how do you do it? Because the piece I just finished, right, was based on my greatest fear because I challenged myself to take on my greatest fear, which is swimming. 
And when I was little, I drowned. My mother witnessed it. It was really bad. It, it, I could not go into a pool for years. I'm very scared of water still. But I said, I have to learn how to swim. And I'm going to make a piece about it. And I started learning that the same communities, this is not direct relation, the same communities that are at risk for type 2 diabetes are most likely to drown in America. And there's studies that show that the reason why primarily like African-Americans, Native Americans, indigenous folks, Latinx, Lat Latina, Latino folks don't swim, usually mom can't swim. So there's a direct correlation of mom doesn't want to take them to swim or mom or grandma or great grandma. And then I learned that my mom didn't know how to swim. Grandmother didn't know how to swim. They're mall Mayans, by the way. But there was a moment in Mayan history where everybody swam. So what happened? It was like, whoa. So I did this work. I took lessons and I made what was called swimming pool party because I asked the question, wouldn't it be great if you took on your greatest trauma, your greatest fear, and at the end, if you succeeded, you had a party of community people celebrating you to do that. So we took up a room at USC, multi-level. People had to solve puzzles. Harry Waters Jr., as I think you know, was the host of this futuristic revolutionary swimming institute because in the future, swimming is illegal and you could only learn it clandestinely. And so the audience, 200 folk, had to solve puzzles and then help the most difficult student get in the pool. And this is all true. This is my first time ever going from the ninth. And I had never, I'd done it once in tech and no one really got that I really didn't know how to swim well yet until tech. And I'm like, and Harry's looking at my eye. Everyone's looking. I, we had a water doula there that was there to help me and all these different folks. And everyone's, oh my God, you really, this is your first time doing this. I go, yeah. And I'm like, ah! And the people go through with Harry and they, they solve the puzzles. We have another pen right over here if somebody wants to grab a rock. The puzzles are based on my three greatest fears about water. Segregation, Alan Kurdi, the boy from Syria that escaped and drowned in Greece, and then third waterboarding. Because that, when that started happening in 9-11, I thought they were gonna take me. So they had to solve puzzles within those three worlds. And then I would Surround swim. Surround the pool, because we need to get him to face the fear of not being able to float. So I go and there's a certain moment in the nine foot and I go to this eight, seven, and I struggle. And at that moment, imagine the entire crowd thinks, oh, this is what he's such a good actor. This is so good acting. This is so great. And the head of administrative facilities has decided to come in and be a and police it, and they think he's a character, but he's actually decided to come and police it. And he's coming in, and the world, in this futuristic world, the world's divided by rocks, and floaters are those that are allowed to swim, and rocks are not. And they think he's a floater. So they, floater, get away, floater. And he doesn't know what's going on because he thinks he's doing a job, and he's being a real not nice human being right now. What are you guys doing? Get away. He's a character. And around the six-foot part, I'm flailing. I hold the side, and everyone gets at that moment, I can't swim. And this is my first time. I'm not making this shit up. And there's like gas, and then all of a sudden, it's bad, I'm going, and then Harry grabs my hand, and he says the line that he's supposed to say if I do it. He had swam, and this 20-piece samba band goes off, and everybody starts singing, there's shakers, there's everything, and they go up to the party with Filipina DJ and food, video, and the samba band. Those kinds of ceremonies, performances, is what I'm interested in. Here we have play, we have agency. I learned a lot about this is who I want to be. Man, this is where the work's going, is they get agency, they get to play, I get to play with them in a hopefully respectful way, and we get to party at the end and play together because we just went through an experience. So you're at Arizona State University right now, and are your students being introduced to this practice? Yes, they are. I am making new classes right now. They let me do it. I change acting one 
so that it would incorporate play. For example, they have to read an essay by John Stilgo, environmental studies professor at Harvard, one of the most popular classes. He teaches, he has a book and the first section is about walking and getting to know your neighborhood. And I give it to them because I want them to start seeing their bodies as this thing that's taking it all in and that they are not just actors, they are not just performers, they're in the in-between, they are storytellers. And to make these stories, they need to understand the relationship to the system of life. And the, the final of the class is they get to make fun of the class. They get to use all the skills to make fun of anything I've done. Because as the rationale is, for me, humor is a great way to show that because you got to know what you know to make fun of it. Absolutely. Yeah. You, if you're trying to crack a joke about something you are not cognizant of, if you don't speak the language, if you don't understand the culture, you're going to fall flat. And it was amazing to watch how they do it. I just love watching them. And then the other class I did, I'm working on is interactivity and engagement. I want to see if I can make a whole slew of classes around those ideas because either working with another discipline or multiple disciplines, because almost every department at Arizona State is dealing with those two words. And yet the performer is not in the room talking to them. And so full circle. Wow. We started with Artist Plus and your many bridges. And now, as all good bridges know, they must do. You are passing it on to your students. This seems like a good place to conclude. It has been an extraordinary pleasure to be sitting here by the San Francisco Bay with the breeze coming in, listening to you unfold the many layers of your incredible story. So... Dear listeners, we again thank you for tuning in. As you can imagine, given the many twists and turns of Mr. Karimi's story, there are many interesting links and references in this episode's show notes. We also want to let you know that in two weeks' time, we will be visiting the hospital. No, not for treatment, but to hear some amazing stories from the realm of art and healing from Jill Sankey, at the University of Florida's Arts and Medicines program. Finally, please know that your attention, your listening, is the lifeblood of this program, so please click on the subscribe button on your podcast player and share with your fellow travelers. Story. Change the story, story, change the world is the production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. We are eternally thankful for the exceptional soundscapes of Judy Munson, the fabulous sound effects from freesound.com and this week's bonus the acting talents of heather cleveland so until next time stay well and spread the good word a final note here uh, for those of you who have been listening in to our trickster series we hope that the meaningful antics and quirky stories that Normando, Salty, and Robert have shared have brought some smiles and insights and maybe even a little wonder into your world. A world that, if you tune in to our next episode featuring storyteller extraordinaire Michael McCarty, will continue on the delightfully tilted path we've been traveling this past month. See you then. <laughs>